Good morning. That's better. Much better, much better. Uh, if you have your Bible, which I know all of you do, or you've got something you can look at, open to the maps in the back first. Open up to the maps in the back, specifically the ones, if you have this, that talk about Paul's missionary journey. It'll be probably one of the last ones. And then put a marker there. And then once you get that marked, open to Acts chapter 13. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Probably all of us have at some point in time faced some kind of opposition, yes or no. Yeah, I, was, I heard some laughter. Yeah, you know, whether it be through work, maybe it is an employee-employer situation, you know, you're trying to, to do something new and innovative and those that are either around you as your peers or maybe your superiors, they don't want that. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They're not interested in that. And so they, they put up some, some opposition. Maybe you like me, have experienced opposition from, I don't know, say, a spouse. Now, I don't have any personal examples, mostly because I want to go home, but that's a possibility, okay? Uh, if you have children, you've never had any opposition, right? Yeah, right. You know, children... They oppose us, it seems like, at every turn, okay? One of the greatest times of opposition is bedtime, you know, or time to get up, or time to take a bath, or time to go somewhere, or time to eat, or time to clean your room. You know, they just pose all this opposition. You know, maybe it's, it's with a, uh, a friend or, or a family member that you've experienced a little bit of pushback, a little bit of, of opposition. Now then, there's probably other times when maybe the opposition we experience is because we were the opposition. You know, somebody brings to you a bad idea, and you just, you know, you know it's a bad idea. You can see the writing on the wall, or you've been down that road before, and you know the, the consequences, or at least potential consequences, and you say, no, you know, I don't think this is, is a good idea. You know, somebody brings you a, a, a project and you have maybe tried it, it's failed, it's not done well, or it's, the results have been disastrous. You become the opposition. You know, I am 100% opposed to skim milk. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense, okay? That is what my opposition is against. Skim milk is a false witness. Okay, it presents a false witness. Thank you for the amens. Okay, 
But we've all experienced opposition in some way, either by you know, having it come on us or being the opposition. But I wonder about the opposition we've experienced or if we have experienced the opposition when it comes to advancing the gospel, when it comes to advancing our, 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 our belief in Jesus Christ. You know, have you experienced opposition by sharing your faith? Have you tried to talk to someone about Jesus and they just absolutely were not interested? Have you tried to serve someone and they didn't want it? They didn't want it just because you represent Christ. Have you ever tried to, to launch a ministry and had opposition against it? And if the answer is, is no, or if you've not ever experienced any opposition like that, then it's possible that it could be a marker that, that maybe, maybe you are not exercising your faith enough. Maybe you are not participating in the advancement of the kingdom of God in impactful ways. And so that's what each of us need to do is we need to evaluate our lives. To look at the way we live and look at the way we interact with people. To look at our, our witness. Remember last week we talked about having a strong witness. You know, is our witness impacting those that we come in contact with? If it is not, or at least if we are not facing opposition, then maybe we're not doing the best job at presenting a witness. Now then, that's, that's incriminatory of me too, okay? Because there's times when my witness just is not strong. As we come to chapter 13, we have a tremendous turning point, a, a, a tremendous pivot in the book, and I, I touched on it briefly last week, as we saw the, the death of, of James, the brother of John, and we saw the arrest of Peter, and then the miraculous uh, release, and we wrestled with why did God allow James to die, and why did Peter, you know, escape and live and go on and present stronger testimony, we, we wrestled with that, but we also said that in chapter 12, Peter is going to sort of exit the stage a little bit. He's still going to be a player, and we're going to see him in, in just a couple of chapters, but he is no longer going to be kind of on the center stage. He's no, no longer going to be sort of the main character in the book of Acts. Now, Paul, Saul, at this point, is going to step forward, and we see that happen. We see that happen in, in Acts 13. So begin reading with me. In verse 1. Now the church at Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And then notice verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Now then there's a lot that has just happened in those three verses alone. 
there is a major turning point right here in the opening because it tells us about the church, but it's not the church that we have typically read about. It's not the church in Jerusalem. You know, it's not sort of the, the mothership that's doing all of this ministry. We now see, and we now will see, that Antioch is going to become kind of one of the leaders. It's going to play a very prominent role in, in the evangelization of the world. And as you, you look at this church, they have some, some very powerful and very diverse leaders that are at work in this church. You have a, a Mediterranean Levite. You have a, uh, you have a black man. You have a Cyrenian. You have a man who grew up and is friends with Herod. And then you have Saul, who is a, a Roman. And it's this group of people who are leading this church in Antioch. And one of the things that they are leading them in is the regular practice of prayer and, and fasting. Now then, we're pretty good at, at one of those, right? Care to venture a guess which one it might be? Yeah, fasting, we're great at it, right? We all have the waistline to prove, right? Especially me, you know? Yeah, we, 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 we struggle a bit. We struggle a bit with one of those things, and that's the fasting. But what we see from this church is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't call its first missionaries from the Jerusalem church, from the mother church. It calls its very first missionaries to the rest of the world from this church here in Antioch. And so he, the Holy Spirit calls them out. They continue worshiping. They continue praying. They continue fasting. And then they send us, they send them out. Now then, as I said, we're kind of good at, at, at one of those. We're not good, at, uh, we're not good at, at both of those things. And so this week, what I'd like to do uh, is issue a community challenge okay and here is the challenge I want to challenge you to take Wednesday as a day of fasting and prayer just the just Wednesday not not the week not the month but just set aside Wednesday if you can now some people might have you know medical conditions that will not allow you to like you say if you're growing a human you know this doesn't apply to you Okay, but maybe find another thing that you might normally do that you can fast from for the day. Okay, and so this is what I want all of us to do, is if you are willing to, I encourage you to fast for the day as, and, and feast on the presence of God. While you're praying, pray for guidance from God. Pray for a, a, some cause that, that you're passionate about. Pray for a, a, a ministry. Okay, Or maybe pray that God opens your doors, opens your eyes, and opens the resources to begin a, a new point of ministry. Okay, Now then, the, the suggestion usually for, for beginning fasters, who's ever fasted before? Anybody? And I, don't mean, I, don't, I don't mean medical fasting. Anybody ever done a biblical fast before? Okay, a couple of you. So you're, you're kind of familiar with it. Don't just go cold turkey nothing, okay? Because you're going to drop out at some point during the day. Okay, That's not a good idea. But just say, if you choose to do this, like I'm going to set aside fasting from food for the day, along with skim milk. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to drink water throughout the day. 
Okay, now then, it's a good idea to make sure you're hydrated before you begin the fast, but drink water, and when you have those hunger pains, that's when you pray. That's when you turn to God and you ask God for His sustenance. You ask for His blessing. You ask for more of His presence and more of His being and more of His, um, more of His, His blessing for whatever it is that you determine in your heart and your mind to pray for, whether it be some ministry, whether it be for our church, for the advancement of the kingdom. And when you feel that, that, that growl in the pit of your stomach, then, then pray. Now then later on in the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post some stuff about fasting on our, our Facebook communication page that will give us some more tips and you can go and, and read, uh, you can read about that just a little bit. But if you can and if you are willing to, I'd like to encourage you, encourage all of us to fast and then when we get, you know, just and, and, and fast from when you get up till 6 p.m. Now then don't sleep till 5 p.m. You know, and then, you know, get up and fast for an hour. That sort of defeats the purpose. But let's break the fast at 6 p.m., okay? Uh, and then let's, as we gather here on Wednesday night, let's talk about our experiences and how, you know, what we felt and did, we, did God reveal anything to us and things like that. So I think that'll be a, a good, uh, I think that'll be a, a good um, exercise for us to do. So I hope that you will, I hope that you will join me in that. So you have... Barnabas and Saul and Simeon and all of these guys who have this regular practice of, of prayer and fasting. It's not just a, you know, a one-off thing like we're going to do. They're going to pray, and as they're praying, the Holy Spirit says, give me Barnabas and Saul. They have work to do. They're going to go into the world, and so they do, and they pray for them. They lay their hands on them, and then they send them out on the very first missionary journey. Now then, flip to the back of your Bible, flip to your Bible map if you've got one. If you don't happen to have one, here's one right here uh, on the screen. This is the map. This is a map of, you know, you've got Turkey and Greece, and you know, that's the modern day uh, places on the map. Um, but this is Paul and Saul, Saul rather, Saul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And here is Antioch, way up here. Jerusalem would be, would be down here. They're in Antioch, and this is where they begin. And the red is the outward trip. The blue is the return trip, at least on, at least on this screen. And so they, uh, they begin heading out. And here is a, a very important thing. That's Barney's home island right there, Cyprus. The first stop on the trip, that's Barnabas's home. Remember the Levite that I mentioned? He is a Levite who grew up on the island of Cyprus, and that's the first place where, I guess, directed by the Holy Spirit, that's where they go, and that's what we're going to see happening throughout, uh, throughout the rest of the day today. There's a guy by the name of I.H. Marshall, and he says that Paul's missionary work during this period, which is around 48 A.D., has the best claim of being called a missionary journey. We gain a false picture of Paul if we... Think of him as rushing rapidly from one place to another, leaving small groups of half-taught converts behind. It was his policy to remain in one place until he established the firm foundation of a Christian community or until he was forced by circumstances beyond his control to move on, which as we continue our study in Acts, we're going to see that happen again and again and again. 
Paul is going to go somewhere. They're going to establish a community, establish a church, and things are going to go well for a while, and then he's going to end up usually getting chased out of town. And a lot of times, barely with his life still in his hands. But for now, they, they set sail. Verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and there sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. Now that's just a little detail that Luke puts in there. John, it's not John like the Apostle John. That's John Mark. And some of your versions may say that. John Mark, he's not, you know, he's not one of the ones that set aside. He just kind of went along, maybe like an intern, you know, baggage carrier. I don't know what he is, but he's sort of their, their helper but he is going to cause a problem in just a little bit. He is going to desert Barnabas and Saul, and later on he's going to try to come back, and it's going to cause such a big problem that Barnabas and Saul are going to split up. They're going to have such an argument over John Mark and his lack of commitment that they split up. Now then, we know that he kind of pulls things together and he gets redeemed. Later on, Paul commends him for the work he does. And, you know, it's believed that John Mark, this is the John Mark who is the author of the Gospel of Mark, who tells one of the Jesus stories, who wrote the very first Jesus story, the first Gospel in our Bible. And so there, there they go. They head off to Cyprus. Now then, notice verse 6 as we begin to meet some of the characters here on Cyprus. When they arrived, or excuse me, when they had traveled the whole island as far as they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. So there's a couple of the, the characters. They arrive, they arrive at the island. They arrive at the island on the, the, the eastern side at Salamis. They do some work there. They preach in the, uh, in the Jewish synagogue. And then they traverse their way across the island to the capital city of, of Paphos. And it's there that we meet these two guys. You have this sorcerer who is eventually, we're going to find out, his name is Elamus. And he is a, a Jew. He's kind of an, an outlier. Because he wouldn't really fit in anywhere. He is not a, necessarily a practicing Orthodox Jew. He's not believing necessarily in Judaism. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer. He's using deception to lead people away, and he is connected to the most powerful man on the island, Sergius Paulus, the, the, the proconsul, or, or what we might think of as a governor. But it says that he is a, a, a very, very, very intelligent man. Now then, Luke makes, a, Luke makes an interesting point here. And it, it, it's this, and N.T. Wright says this. He says, in our world, political polarization leads people into simplistic analysis and diagnosis of complex social problems and to a readiness to dismiss out of hand all authorities, and anyone in power, whether locally or globally. Now then, you and I know that when it comes to politics, 
everybody agrees. Everybody gets along, right? No. And it is it can be kind of dangerous to discuss politics, can it not? You know, it divides families, it divides friends. My least favorite time to preach is during an election year. It is the toughest time to preach because that's where we hear all of the stuff. Or that's where we hear most of the stuff. And that's where you hear a lot of the political mudslinging, right? And it is very easy, and you know this and I know this, it is very, very easy to vilify and to demonize an individual or a group of people who you don't agree with. Am I right? It's very, very easy to do that. It's easy to say, that group of people, they're all evil. All Republicans are bad. All Democrats are bad. You know, it's very easy to do that. And this is what N.T. Wright is saying. You know, it's easy to sit back, take a whole sweeping view, and say, all those people are wrong. All those people are right. You know, and, and we've probably all done something like that. I know that I've done that. But when I take the time to get to know the individual, you know, I realize, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not right about that. There are people whom I disagree with things that are still good people. I think what Luke wants us to understand is that while Rome is the hated power of the world, that he is very willing to show us that not all Romans are bad. You know, we've already seen a centurion come to faith. And right here we see Sergius Paulus, who is a Roman official, who wants to hear about what Paul, what Saul and Barnabas are saying. Notice verse 8. But Elamus the sorcerer, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 7 says that Sergius wants to hear the word of God. He wants to hear what, what, what Saul has to say, but then you have this Jewish sorcerer who opposed them, who is trying to turn the proconsul away because he recognizes he recognizes that there is, a, there is a threat. Now then, watch this. Verse 9. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elamus. And he said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? You call somebody a son of the devil? I don't recommend that, by the way. But that's what he says. You son of the devil. You're an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight path of the Lord? Verse 11. Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and you will not see for a time. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Think back just a few chapters earlier to Acts chapter 9. What happened to Saul? He's on the road to Damascus. He has a letter in hand 
to go and drag Christians back to Jerusalem to have them jailed and, and tortured and maybe even put to death for their faith in Jesus. And what happens? He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and he's blinded for three days and it said they had to lead him around by the hand. Yet this is exactly what happens here. He recognizes... He recognizes what Elamus is doing. He turns and he rebukes him. And he says, hey, God's hand is against you. You're not going to be able to see. You are going to be blind. And I think maybe this, this blindness, this darkness is a metaphor. Metaphor for what Elamus was doing. He's this sorcerer, this false prophet who is blinding people to the salvation of God. And perhaps maybe Paul is hoping that Elamus will experienced the same thing that he did. And that Elamus, just like Saul, will, will turn to the Lord in, in repentance. You see, Elamus, he recognized, he recognized that if the proconsul, if the governor becomes a Christian, then he's going to lose his influence. He may lose his, his political clout. He recognizes that this invasion of, a, of the gospel of Jesus is a threat to his power, and that's why he opposed. Paul recognizes it, rebukes him, sends darkness upon him through Jesus. Now then watch what happens. The rest of verse 11. Immediately a mist of darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then verse 12. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He does not believe. Now, then, it doesn't say he becomes a, a Christian. We don't know that. But it does say he begins to believe in Jesus. It's not the, the supernatural act of being struck blind that turns him. Did you see what it is? It's the teaching of the Lord that causes him to be amazed. Causes him to believe. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an evaluator there for us. Are we still amazed at the teaching of the Lord? When you take up the Word of God and you open it up, do you still read it with amazement? Are you still amazed at what Jesus does in our lives? Are we amazed that He's rescued us from the power of darkness, from the power of hell? That He's rescued us from the chains that have, have bound us? And he's given us life and he's given us, he's given us freedom. And He's given us a help in our time of struggle. Jesus told His disciples that in life they would have what? Trouble. You remember that? In this life you will have trouble. He told them that He's overcome the world. He also promised that in the, the midst of trouble that there would be someone to help His disciples along. The Helper, the, the, the Holy Spirit. 
And so as I, I read this text and I see the, the opposition that, that, that Saul, who becomes Paul in this story, as I see the opposition that they face, it makes me wonder why I don't always face opposition. And it makes me wonder, am I not, am I not living a strong enough witness? Am I not sharing my faith the way I should? And I think these are things that each of us have to wrestle with. I mean, if we are going to call ourselves Christians, that means we, by name at least, we follow Christ, right? And if we are serious about following Christ, then we should be talking about that. We should be living that out on a daily basis, right? We should be showing, I'm not saying that everybody has to, to stand up and, and preach and all of that, but as I think about it, you know, sometimes life just you know, seems pretty good, it's easy. But it worries me a bit when I begin to think that being a, you know, the, being a Christian is kind of easy. It worries me a bit when I think about being a Christian means just doing what I do here. When contending for the faith happens at 10.30 on Sunday mornings up here. Because, you know, I mean at church you, you expect to hear about God, right? At church you expect to hear about Jesus. There might be people that, that come that are not Christians, but they at least know what to expect somewhat before they get here, right? Well, what about beyond our walls? Are we presenting a strong witness of Jesus to the people that we come in contact with? Or do we sideline Jesus until Sunday? Or maybe Wednesday. Do we have any opposition whatsoever to our faith? And I think, I think one of the markers of strong faith can be opposition to what we're trying to do. to what we're, we're, we're trying to, to live. And so the, the community connection that I want to make this week is, is simply this. When it comes to advancing the kingdom, embrace opposition, rely on the Holy Spirit, and stretch out in faith. And so I, I want to encourage all of us, myself included, to do more of this. And I think we have to embrace opposition before we experience opposition. Does that make sense? In other words, we have to embrace the possibility that we will experience opposition. Because I'm 
going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to share my faith, not in an annoying way, not in a way that is, you know, like the fundamentalist beat somebody over the head with the Bible, cram it down their throat, burn in hell if you don't. Don't do that. But I'm talking about loving, gracefully sharing a compassionate faith and belief in Jesus Christ with those we come, around, come in contact with. To do that, we have to embrace the idea that opposition will come to us. Because not everybody wants to hear about this, right? And, and so much so that some places have said, you can't talk about that. But remember that we have the Holy Spirit who will be with us and who will, will, will guide us. I have a, uh, a friend, um, he is a pilot for Delta. Uh, he's been with Delta for a long time. I mean, he sits in the captain's chair. Well-respected within the uh, pilot community. And he's a, he's a strong uh, believer in Jesus. And he told me the story one time where uh, they were taking off out of Atlanta and the rain was just coming down in sheets and they got up above the clouds. And if you've ever flown in, in rain like that, you know that once you kind of get up above the storm, the, the sun breaks through. And it, he said there was just this, this brilliant sun and brilliant sky. And, you know, he turned, he said he turned to his, his, his co-pilot, he said, you know, that's just, you know, you know, I, I'm ex I experience God when I see this. He says, because the rain is like, you know, that's what I was feeling. I was feeling lousy. I wasn't feeling good. Come up into the sun, and it just sort of changed my whole thing. He goes, you know, and, and for me, you know, that's what, what God does in my life. It was a short conversation. Very short. They completed the, completed the, the run. He went back home. And then within a few days, he received an official reprimand from Delta. Saying you can't do that. You can't, uh, you know, he wasn't necessarily saying you should believe this. He was just making an observation about what he experienced, what, what he felt, and it offended one of his coworkers. And of course, he received this, this official reprimand. But I think we have to expect that as we try to share our faith in Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright says, there is no advance for the gospel without opposition. Paradoxically, it's only when an apparent disaster threatens or when the church suddenly faces opposition and has to pray its way through that you can be quite sure that you're on the right track. Now, I'm certainly not praying that a disaster befall us no person in their right mind would. <laughs> but sometimes I wonder sometimes I wonder if we as a church or as individuals are even a blip on Satan's radar. Have you ever considered that? Sometimes I think we are. 
Sometimes I think we do powerful, powerful things for the kingdom. And other times I think, oh, well, you know, they're not really doing anything. I don't have to worry about them right now. More so, I think about that in my own life. Oh, we'll let him preach on Sunday mornings. That's fine. Preaching to the choir anyway. Sometimes I wonder if what we do registers. Our call is to pick up a cross daily and follow after Jesus. Right? And so that means that we are to serve people. We are to to sacrifice for others. Not for our own glory, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. For the advancement for the the name and the the fame of Jesus. Although I don't think Jesus cares about fame. But for the witness of Jesus. Are you presenting the kind of witness that might find itself in opposition to others? I think that's a question that that each of us who, who calls ourselves Christians, I think that's a question that we have to wrestle with. Am I presenting a witness that is strong enough that might find itself opposed to those around me? or someone around me? And if the answer is yes, then we have to figure out the best godly way to move forward. You know, we could stand up and be Christian bullies, but that's not a good idea. When Christ always was open-handed and laid down His life. When we face opposition in the kingdom we must embrace it we must rely upon God's Holy Spirit to give us the words to give us the leading and the guiding and then stretch out in faith trusting trusting that God the Holy Spirit will be with us. So maybe again to follow up last week, what kind of what kind of witness are we presenting? Which is easy and agreeable because maybe we don't really have anything to stand for. Or is there the possibility of opposition because of who we live for? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your 
love. Thank you for the way that you have blessed us. Thank you for Thank you for saving us. God, as we begin to, to look through the, the missionary journeys over the next few chapters in the book of Acts, I pray that we will not just see this as something far off that took place so long ago, but God, we will understand that we have a place in that mission as well. That we have a role to play. And that we have a call upon our lives, and it's to, it's to be a witness for Jesus. God, we don't, um, we don't fully understand what it means to face the kind of opposition that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and John and the others faced. But God, we also know that there are people that live among us and work among us that don't want anything to do with you or Jesus. They don't care about the Bible or or faith or anything like that. And I pray that we would not live in a way that is spiteful that leads to opposition. Or that would bring opposition because we are arrogant and self-righteous about our faith. But that we would just live like you and like Jesus. And if opposition comes, that we would embrace that Accept it the way Jesus did. With open hands and love in our hearts. God, I pray that as we spend this just small portion of this week fasting. The one, that you will give us the strength to do it. And the two, that you will use that time to challenge our hearts and challenge our minds. To help us reflect on the witness that, that, that we have. And to reflect on, on what we present. And I pray, God, that you will call us to more. God, I pray that we will be committed to showing more of you to more of your people. Helping us to be aware of what might be coming, to rely upon the Holy Spirit, and then to act in faith. Knowing that that never once you've left us Never once have we walked alone unless we've just chosen to leave you. Knowing that you will be with us. We 
pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.